0: Romans chapter 8 uh, on page 1135 of the Pew Bible. If you're a visitor here, we've been going through uh, Romans and spending a little bit of time looking at Romans 8. This is uh, my absolute just favorite part of the whole Bible. It's such a wonderful thing for us to grasp if you're not a Christian This is what a Christian is about, and if you are a Christian, this is what you are about. So I'm going to read from verse 31, where we're going to look this morning from verse 35. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? We pray that as we think about them and reflect upon them, that we would hear the voice of Jesus speaking to us, and that we would be changed. In your name, amen. <clears throat> There's a, um, an interesting phrase in, in Chrysostom, the old Greek preacher, where he talks about a child playing with toy bricks. I thought it was interesting, because I didn't realize that they played with toy bricks in fourth century Greece, but apparently they did. And he he speaks to his audience, and he says to them, it's great for a child to pray with bricks. I'm pretty sure it wasn't Lego uh, at that point, but he says, it's great for a child to play with bricks, but adults should not be childish in their pursuits. And he talks about how we chase after things that are relatively trivial. And we worry about things that are relatively trivial. And we need to focus on what is really needful. We need to pursue Christ. We need to know Christ. We need to uh, desire Christ. Um, When we come to the Scriptures, when we're gathered with God's people, we're in a room with great, great treasures. And we are sometimes as C.S. Lewis describes it, we're playing in the mud and not seeing the wonder and the beauty of what we have. We live in an illusion. We need to learn to live and to understand and to grasp the reality of Christ and to grow in the knowledge and love of Christ. Now, one difficulty that many Christians have, and even someone who's thinking about becoming a Christian, they think, what if I can't keep it up? What if I fail? What if it doesn't work out? And here is, I think, Paul's answer to this. I think the whole of Romans 8 is the answer to this. And I think it's important to realize what it is because this may not attract you if you're, if, if you're not yet a Christian. And I tell you this, you may you may not be attracted to Christianity in some ways. Christianity is not a way, becoming a Christian is not a way to solve all your difficulties. In fact, becoming a Christian, it may add to your difficulties. And that's what Paul very realistically deals with here. And he's saying, what if you fail? The answer to that question is Christ never fails. If God is for us, who can be against us? So we're going to look at uh, two things, two main points instead of three. But don't worry, you'll not be shortchanged because there's Seven points in the first point, and there's ten points in the second point. So, set your watches, right? The first is seven degrees of separation. What, what, who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Well, Paul immediately answers that, and he suggests some things that could. Trouble, hardship, and persecution. What's trouble? Trouble is a word here for really strong pressure. It's a word you could sometimes translate tribulation. And uh, it's actually tied in with this. It's tied in with our, with our, with our harvest. Because what they did in the harvest, um, I'm sure those of you who you're all agriculturally sound and you all know how this happens. But the, these grains of corn don't just fall off. We, we now have a combine harvester. They didn't have one in those days. But they did have a machine. And what they would do is they would bring the sheaves in and they would spread them on the floor and then they would put what they called a tribulum, Latin, a tribulum. That's, and that's how we get the word tribulation. And the tribulum was a wooden sledge which had metal uh, spikes on it that it would be dragged over the floor. And basically, it would beat the corn off the stalks. And that's how we ended up with the word tribulation. It was when circumstances so press down upon you, you feel oppressed. You feel bruised. You feel beaten. Hardship indicates outward trouble like that, plus inward distress. And the word that's used for hardship gives us this idea of being narrow and confined, being, being pressed. So you're under pressure. You are, you're, you're squashed. And you, you feel restricted in so many ways. You feel confined. You f- feel trapped. Um, there are two songs that those of you who are into good music will understand, and those of you who are not won't, uh, both by Queen, Under Pressure, and I Want to Break Free. And that describes how many people are. They're, they're, they're in trouble, they have hardship, and then persecution. Persecution is when someone is after you, intending to cause you harm. In the Christian terms, there are subtle, and there are not so subtle, persecution. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So, three things first of all. Who could separate us from the love of God? He's saying, can trouble separate us? Can being under pressure, can being confined and squashed, uh, can being uh, attacked even for our faith, can that separate us from the love of God? Famine and nakedness. Matthew 6.25 says this, Jesus says, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. We see all these gifts and we give thanks to God. And I hope that you do give thanks to God um, when you eat the fruit of other people's labor. But here's the problem for the Romans. They lived in Rome, a city of a million people, where especially amongst the poor, starvation happened Quite a lot. If the, if the harvest was not brought in, if war or famine affected the surrounding regions, then very often, and this is always the case, of course, it was the poor who were affected the most. And yet here, Jesus has promised, don't worry about these things. And Paul is writing to the Romans, Christians, and he's saying to them, can famine separate you from the love of Christ? nakedness. And nakedness here is not about indecency. Nakedness is about not being able to clothe yourselves. Many of you could go home this afternoon, and you could rake through your cupboards, and you would find that half the clothes that are in there you don't wear at all. You're concerned in terms of your clothing about what it looks like, whether it fits in with current fashion and trend and everything else. But here Paul is writing about What if you don't have enough money to buy clothes? Shall nakedness separate you from the love of Christ? And incidentally, just in terms of where we are at in our own culture, most of us, if not all of us here, are not going to go home and, and wonder about what we're going to eat other than choice, but it's astonishing. I, I, I find this astonishing that um, in our lifetime, many of us have seen a situation where a million people in Britain today are using food banks. This is really quite incredible. We have people who are concerned about what they shall eat. And then he uses two other things: he says, danger or sword. And sword here means execution. So, and he quotes Psalm 42, where he says, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. He's talking about people who are Christians being thought, because they are Christians, they can be killed. And he says, well, that separates us. It's like in Hebrews 11. 32. What more shall I say? I do not have time to talk about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. And that sounds great, and if it stopped there, it would have been great. But he then goes on. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced years and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So Paul's writing to the Christians in Rome. He's writing after a period of persecution when they're probably in a period of peace, and there's some division amongst the Christians. He's reminding them of what the gospel is, and he's saying to them, can the sword, can execution separate you from the love of Jesus? I'm reminded constantly of people who will say to me, I don't believe in God and I don't believe in Jesus because something bad happened to me. How can that be? I grew up in the church and then something bad happened. How can that be? Well, if that's your argument… You never believed in the God of the Bible because of the God of the Bible says bad things are going to happen. They do happen. And some of them are absolutely awful, but can they separate you from the love of Christ? Nobody knows the exact figure, but between 100,000 and half a million people every year are killed for their faith. Christians I'm talking about. It's strange Almost if it was any other group, we would ex- we, you would get a huge fuss within our culture. But it, we're almost blasé about it now. Occasionally you hear about a bomb in Nigeria, or you hear about people being executed in Saudi Arabia. But it's not just in these contexts. Persecution, direct persecution, including death, occurs in China and in North Korea, and in many Muslim countries, and in some, uh, some of these countries in Africa, but in other places as well. Now, what Paul is telling the Romans is, this is not a comfortable world in which to profess your faith. So, he asks, can pain and misery and loss separate Christ's people from his love? And it's interesting, when you go through this list, Paul is not writing from a kind of luxury apartment above his, you know, academic institution. Paul had experienced all of these except execution, and he was to be executed, and he was to be executed in Rome. Can you imagine being a Christian in Rome, having this letter, maybe having a copy of it, knowing it probably by heart, having been read in your church many, many times, And one day, you're standing on the Appian Way as Paul, who wrote the letter, is being taken to house arrest in Rome, eventually to be executed. And he wrote this before saying, the sword cannot separate us from the love of Christ. And as we we go on, you'll see he says, I am absolutely convinced, totally convinced of this. The other thing for these Christians is this. Within a decade of this letter being written and received by the church, all of these things would happen to the Christians. Paul's not saying, don't worry, be happy, everything is going to turn out all right. He's saying, listen, there's going to be trouble and hardship and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. It's going to happen, but nothing will be able to separate you from the love of Christ. There are many, many, many extraordinary testimonies of Christians who were killed in the time of Nero and thereafter for about 200 years in Rome. And I am absolutely convinced that it's because of this teaching that the Christians were prepared and even went joyfully to their death. This wasn't God saying to them, You're going to be protected, nothing bad's going to happen to you. This was God saying to them, There will be bad things that happen, but nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Someone to argue that because the love of Christ is so real and so unshakable, we won't get into trouble. Paul says, We're like sheep to be slaughtered. Don't think that because you're a Christian, you won't get into trouble. But here's the astonishing thing. Look at the, the, the last bit of those verses that are up there. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What's he just said? He said, We're sheep. But then he says, We're sheep that conquer. Now, I'm sorry, sheep don't conquer. Not even in the worst Walt Disney movie. Sheep don't conquer. By the way, sheep can be really rough. Don't, sheep are not cute and cuddly. Um, they can be. I've been headbutted by sheep, and they are vicious. Um, <laughs> but. Sheep don't conquer. The lion conquers. Maybe the elephant conquers. You have these great animals. But here, Paul even invents a word, a word that hadn't existed before. He doesn't just use the word conquer, he uses the words hyperconquer. And he's saying, not only that we bear the sufferings, kind of stoically, oh, well, this is the way it's going to be, but we triumph over them. We're in a spiritual battle which involves every aspect of our being, and yet. We, are, we triumph over them. And how do we do that? Not because we are better than other people. Not because we have stronger characters. Not because we somehow are more intelligent or other things like that. Here's how we conquer. He says it's very simple. Through him who loved us. John Stott says this. Paul seems to be saying that since Christ proved his love for us by his, his sufferings, so our sufferings cannot possibly separate us from it. First John 4, 10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Luther argues, we did not love him first, but he first loved us, and he still loves us first. It's not because we love that he loves, but he loves, therefore we love. See, you, you're gonna make a big mistake in your life as a Christian. If only I love God more. If only I was this. If only I was that. You know, your greatest need is not to do that. Your greatest need is to understand how much Jesus loved you. Ah, yeah, you got that. I got that. I know that. No, you don't. You don't know it. I don't know it. We think we know it. We've got it in our heads and we've learned it in Sunday school. Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. But we don't grasp and understand what it means. And I'll tell you how I know that. Because how many people here would joyfully go to their death? I don't think there's one of us. Even the slightest trouble we get really wound up and upset about, understandably. But if we perceive the love of Christ and what that means, we would be hyper-conquerors. We would be more than conquerors. He loved us. He died for the church so that we should be forgiven, but more than that, so that we should arrive at absolute perfection. Ephesians says he loved us. So that his bride could be without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing. And Christ is going to do that. Christ is going to ensure that his people are absolutely perfect as they enter heaven. We are not perfect now. And one of the ways that he is working that out is through all these various weavings and circumstances within our life. Which we would never cope with. We couldn't cope with. If we didn't know that he loved us. See, what he's saying is he's not asking, can our love to Christ stand these tests? He's not saying you're going to have all these tests, and it's going to really test how much you love Jesus. What he's asking is, can Christ's love to us stand through these tests? And the answer is yes. So let's go on. That's the the seven things there. Let's just go on to the, the last verses, verses 38 onwards, where there are 10 reasons he gives for an absolute conviction that The love of God can never go from us. Now, you'll notice that Paul says he's become convicted. He's persuaded. He's thought it through. It's something that's rational. It's something that's reasonable. He didn't go to a meeting and suddenly his heart was filled and he thought, wow, this is great, though I'm sure that that did happen to him. But he thought it through. He worked it out. He went, step one, step two, step three, step four, step five, and that's what's happened through the whole of Romans I know we don't like that sometimes. um, Some of us are not very good at counseling in, in, in today's culture. You know, get over it is maybe as close as we get. and That's not good. It is good to be empathetic with people. It is good to weep with those who weep. But sometimes what we also need to do is weep with those who weep and then work through it step by step by step by step so that people can see. And this is what Paul is doing here. He's telling the Romans, this is what's going to happen. And he's saying, "In, in, in all of these things, and he's really going back to chapter 1, verse 16, coming all the way up to here. He's saying, this is why I am absolutely convinced of this. It's rational. It's reasonable. It's unchangeable. I am absolutely certain. So in chapter 1, verse 16, he said this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And here, he says, verse 38, I am convinced. It's just the, the positive, I'm, I'm not ashamed. I am convinced. And those, those two sentences, everything in between, is what he is referring to. And what is he convinced of? He's convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he lists them. In there, he lists uh, four pairs and two singles. First pair, death nor life. Many are afraid of death. Of course we are. Francis Bacon says this, men fear death as children fear the dark. I was um, listening to something this week on the news about the knife stabbings in London and one uh, black youth worker saying one of the sad things about the culture is a lot of our young people no longer fear death because they've got it all mixed up with computer games and a whole bunch of other stuff. And it was just, it was such a sad, he says, you know, someone dies and it's on social media for a week and then it's all forgotten about. He says, there have been so many stabbings. But it's more, it is the more natural condition to be afraid of death. But maybe it's even worse to be afraid of life. That's why, of course, why people commit suicide. Maybe you're so discouraged, so depressed, so down. Maybe you're so fearful about absolutely everything that you are afraid of life. In terms of death, the Bible answers that. Christ answers that. Where, O death, is your victory? Death has been swallowed up in victory. Jesus Christ, Paul says in 2 Timothy 1 verse 10, has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I'm not a morbid person, but I love sitting out in that graveyard there. And my favorite place in Dundee is... Uh, Balgay Graveyard, and I love looking at the gravestones. I love going to graveyards. Graveyards are great places to go, especially if you're a Christian. Because you're able to say, this this is not the end. It's not the end. For the believer, it is absolutely not the end. I don't need to be afraid of death. How can life threaten to separate us? Well, if we're two ways, I think. If we have a hard life, if things are really rough and things are really tough, that can threaten to separate us from the love of God. But also, paradoxically, the other way. If life's really good, so right now, you're full, you've had a great breakfast, your job is quite good, you've got plenty of money in the bank, you're in good health, I will almost guarantee it's much harder for you to listen to the Word of God than it is for the person who's struggling. Why? Because the enticements of life have taken away your desire for God. You don't need to be afraid of life. You don't need to be afraid of death. It can never separate you from the love of Christ. And that's why I'm saying we need to know more about Christ and the love of Christ. Because if we honestly did, if we honestly grasped this, then what a freedom that would be for us. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him neither angels nor demons. Is he talking about good angels separating us? How can that be? I don't think so, but I think what he's basically saying, all the principalities and powers, I guess angels could become objects of worship, even the good ones. We could make mistakes, but the demons and everything else, nothing could separate us. Um, There are many, many things that come from America that I'm very thankful that we have. You know, the blues, the blues, for example. uh, Country music even, uh, the best of it, the worst of it they should keep. But one American import that I can't stand is Halloween. I like the old Scottish Halloween. It's just a nightmare to go into a supermarket and see all the Halloween stuff that's there. And then the Halloween movies. Um, I think I watched one of those when I was a teenager and never again. Why do people want to be scared in, in movies, I just absolutely hate the things. But other people, it's a bit like a roller coaster. They think they're fine and they think they're great. But paradoxically, as our culture has moved away from belief in God, people have become more afraid of the spiritual. I don't know if you saw the news this week of the um, American Supreme Court Justice, Burt Kavanaugh, being, uh, the, the witches in New York are putting a hex on him. You know, and you think, oh, come on, you can't be serious. But they are serious. Of course, they're doing it in love, for love and peace and everything, but they're putting a hex on him. I, and it, it's bizarre that in this city, at this time, there are people who, rather than worship Jesus Christ, want to worship evil spirits. And if you've ever come into contact with that kind of stuff, I had an aunt and uncle who uh, were in Africa and I asked them, did they believe in evil spirits possessing people? Absolutely, totally. And these were good, solid, conservative brethren people. Absolutely, they'd seen it. Um, perhaps in this culture, we haven't seen very much of that. But more and more as we turn away from the gospel, perhaps that's what we will see. And it can be really, really scary when you come in, in, into contact with genuine evil in that sense. And Paul says, no, no the angels, nor the demons, because there was going to be a demon in that sense in Nero. What he did to the Christians was unbelievably cruel. One thing I'm sure some of you know was when he burnt down his own palace, he blamed the Christians, and in order to punish them, he turned them into human torches lining the street for miles and put them on fire and watched them burn to death slowly. Evil. Can that separate us from the love of Christ? What about the present or the future? He's talking about time. And time can do so much for us. You know, you're married, you're in love with someone. In a year's time, how much things could change? You're in good health in a year's time. How much things could change? The thing that we're all defenseless against is against time. There's not a single person here who by worrying can add an hour to your life. And there isn't a single person who who by will of effort can stop time. But time is powerless against believers. Hendrickson describes it as the presence with its temptations or the future with its uncertainties. Nothing in time can take the believer away from the love of Christ. What about height nor depth? And here he's thinking about space. I don't know if you ever consider the enormity of space. One of the advantages of living in the country or of living on a farm is, is that when you go out and there isn't light pollution, you're able to look at space. And just the sheer enormity of it blows your mind. It, you, you, you feel so insignificant. You feel so small in such a vast environment. But what Paul is saying is this, God's love is greater than the universe Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If, my, if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. You know, um, it's very interesting, the stories of the two men who went into space. Neil Armstrong went, went on the moon. I don't think they show this in the film, by the way, that they had communion. I'm pretty sure they don't show that in the film. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm told they don't. But one of the Russian astronauts who went into space came down and said, I didn't see God. Ha. Huh. Well, what stupidity, really? And what small-mindedness? Job, thousands of years before, said, I, I, I look to the distant stars and I realize they are just the outer fringe of his power. You know, God's nothing in space can separate you from the love of God. It's the very opposite of that confined, pressured feeling. What about the powers, the forces of the universe? This was used by the Greeks to speak of the astrological powers, the, the signs of the zodiac and so on. But here I think Paul is talking about any powers. He has no power. No power comes anywhere near the power of Christ and can separate you from his love. And just to wind it all up. He says everything and else in all creation. He says can you think of anything? Can you think of anything that could separate you from the love of Christ? You can't say well my sin. Because he's dealt with your sin. So you try and come up with something. And you can't. And that's why Paul says. I, I, I'm so convinced. I'm so confident. I think. Um, I remember reading someone describing it in this way. It's like a mountaineer. I don't know if any of you have ever done rock climbing. Um, we used to have a mad Finnish guy with us, Risto. <laughs> Remember Risto? And before he got married, I think he had to stop after he got married, but he used to, he used to do um, freestyle rock climbing. And that's the kind of stuff you see on YouTube videos. You know, they, they go up cliffs with no ropes. Um, it's not a big career. You don't last too long with it for a lot of people, but uh, you can understand why. But I guess the thrill of it, and he was very, very good at it, and Risto was very strong and so on. But most mountain climbers, how do they do it? They have a rope. And they're tied to a rope. And there's a sense in which how this works is that God's love is our rope and is our security. And wherever we go, whether it's over level ground or very difficult, steep ground, it's the rope of God's love that keeps us. Our confidence, says Stott, is not in our love for him, which is frail and fickle and faltering, but in his love for us, which is steadfast, faithful, and persevering. It is God who perseveres with us. Our sufferings, if you suffer, please do not believe the lie of the devil that this is God rejecting you. You're experiencing this discouragement. You're experiencing this depression. You've experienced this illness. You've experienced this death. Because God is punishing you. I remember one very, very distraught lady who, who came to me and after the death of a child said, What have I done to deserve this? She'd done nothing to deserve it. This is the world in which we live if you, if you operate on the basis, if, if I'm good, God will give me this. And if I'm bad, God will give me that. And therefore, when bad things happen to me, if either God is unjust or I've been bad, you're going you're gonna to just be absolutely destroyed with guilt and doubt and fear. But if you understand that your sufferings do not speak of God's re- rejection, and they do not speak of the great power of the devil, the devil cannot do anything to you that God does not permit. God's love is greater than it all. Now, let me just back off for a second and say this. This is why the teaching about the love of God is so important, because there's a great confusion about it. Every single church today, you're going to get people saying, we believe in the love of God. At least we all agree on that. And my answer to that is, no, we don't, because What is the love of God? There are people who say, well, I believe in the love of God, but I don't believe in the cross. I don't believe in sin. I don't believe in God punishing Jesus on the cross for our sin. I don't believe in any of that. Well, you don't believe in the love of God. You have a philosophical idea. You have a philosophical conception of the love of God, but it's not a concrete reality, and it won't ever help anyone. The cross, and only the cross, shows us what? The real divine love is the extent of God's love. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is at the cross where we first see the light. Again, going back to my new favorite, Chrysostom. He says, I know indeed that many tremble only at hell. But I affirm the loss of that glory is a far greater punishment than hell. You know what he's saying? He's saying, worse than going to hell is not knowing the love of Christ. It's not grasping the love of Christ. It's not understanding this great glory of the love of Christ. Barnhouse puts it in another way. The love of Christ was eternal, for it was that love which moved him to leave heaven's throne and come down to the earth to redeem us. That love was deep, For it was that love which urged him on to the end of the road as he humbled himself to death, even the death of the cross. That love was broad, for it was that love which opened the arms of God to all the world of sinners and made it possible for the very ones who nailed him to the cross to be forgiven and come back to the Father's heart. And that love is unchanging, for it is that love which comes to us in the day, in the midst of our need, whatever it may be, and takes us out of darkness and into light and from doubt to certainty, and from death to life. It is the love of God. We cannot be separated from the love of God. Do you know what an assurance that is? Let me just put it personally in this way. I know that if I sin tomorrow or sin today, it can't separate me from the love of Christ. I know that if the whole world... Turned against me, couldn't separate from the love of Christ. I know that if I went to the doctor tomorrow and he said, You've got two days to live, couldn't separate me from the love of Christ. In fact, there is nothing that you could mention that could separate from the love of Christ. And in all the darkness that we experience, and we will experience darkness and we will experience discouragement, just because you, you know this doesn't mean that you're always going to be walking around in, in a total uh, daze of happiness. But it does mean that you have an absolute firm foundation for your life. And you can have an absolute surety and certainty. In fact, you will probably get to a point where you say, you know this, I am not certain of anything at all now. I am so confused. I am really, really confused about so many things and so many people. And so many things that I was so certain of are now uncertain. But the one thing I'm never going to let go of this is that nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If we knew it, I think we would have sung it, and we will learn to sing it, but there's a wonderful old hymn that I, I, I just want to read it to you to finish and then pray the prayer from Ephesians. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say to you than he has said to all who for refuge to Jesus have fled in every condition? in sickness, in health, in poverty's grip or abounding in wealth, at home or abroad, on the land, on the sea, as days may demand shall your strength ever be. Since Jesus is with you, do not be afraid. Since he is your God, you need not be dismayed. He'll strengthen you, guard you, and help you to stand, upheld by his righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters he calls you to go, you will not be drowned in the rivers of woe for he will be with you in trouble to bless and work for your good through your deepest distress. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, his grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. The flames shall not harm you. His only design, your dross to consume and your gold to refine. And these beautiful words, the soul that in Jesus has found its repose, he will not He cannot desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, he'll never, no never, no never forsake. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you for your word, and we kneel before you. We kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And we pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen, you may strengthen us with power, through your Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And Lord, we pray that we would be rooted and established in love, that we would have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. Amen. We're going to sing the song, How Deep the Love of Jesus. If someone could go through and get the Sunday school uh, children back through as well for the baptism. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. Let's stand and sing this to God's praise.